Human beings are the most powerful species on the planet, but this was not always so. In a fascinating exploration of our earliest origins through the evolution of modern society, Hebrew University professor Yuval Noah Harari's bestseller delves into the origins of society, religion, economics, and much more. Rabbi Shalom's review also marked the relatively new humanist holiday of Darwin Day and the interfaith initiative of Evolution Weekend. Who do we think we are? We like to think that we're unique. We even might say we're very unique, even though you can't say very unique, as the English teachers know. You're one of a kind, you're one of a kind. But we thought that we were one of a kind from the beginning, or so we thought. The Genesis story of creation has humanity made entirely separate, created from the dust of the ground after all of the other animals were made, at least in chapter 1. In chapter 2, the order is a little different, but that's a different sermon. In this case, we've always imagined that we were entirely different from all the other animals that were out there, but we're not even different from all the other members of our genus that were ever out there. The discoveries of anthropology, of paleontology, these skeletons, these evolutionary ancestors, or even simultaneous cousins. Imagine what life was like 20,000, 30,000 years ago when there were Homo sapiens spreading over the world alongside Homer Neanderthalus and these other varieties of the Homo species. And that's why when Harari titled his book, he didn't title it Homo sapiens because Homo wasn't enough. It's sapiens. We are the brainy people. We know. Saber, to know. That's the essence of what makes us human. It's not the strength. Neanderthals were stronger. It's not the tool-making. Homo habilis created tools. It means the tool-making version of our species. We were the thinkers. And it was the thinking that made all the difference. Now, a really good thinker is Yuval Harari, who's written this book. He teaches in the Department of World History at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, where he received his undergraduate training. He got his doctorate, his PhD, at Oxford University, ironically in Jesus College at Oxford University. And now he's moved back to the land of Israel, where he lives and teaches. I learned a lot about Harari by reading his book, but not by reading his bio. Because you can hear in the way he presents the story of humanity, the morals and the lessons he offers, his values. He is a Buddhist, it would seem to me, at least by the way he talks about humanity. He is certainly a vegan, and the way he talks about animals, and how they have explored and experienced the preeminence of Homo sapiens in the uh, experience of Earth. He's a universalist, not interested in a particular ethnic group, although he certainly comes from a Jewish perspective. I'll show you one example in a moment. And he's a secularist. He sees religion as a human-made thing, something that has evolved itself out of our needs and desires, and most importantly, out of a social utility that it has served over the centuries. Harari is a realist on the benefits and the drawbacks of the steps we've taken. And one of the most excellent things he does in the book is to ask, is this really progress? Did we really do better? Are we really happier and better off 
with the way things went from stage A to stage B. He's also a very creative writer, and I want you to note the title of the first few chapters. In part one, The Cognitive Revolution, which I'll talk about in a moment, he has an animal of no significance, the tree of knowledge, a day in the life of Adam and Eve, and the flood. Sound familiar? Beginning of another book you may have read before, like the book of Genesis. And then in the second section on the agricultural revolution, he calls it history's biggest fraud, which I'll explain in a moment. And then he has building pyramids. Hmm, a second book about building pyramids. I've heard that before, too. It's like a retelling of Exodus. In fact, at the end of that section, he says, there is no justice in history. Perhaps a dialogue with the original version of an Exodus story. What Harari describes in his book are four revolutions that changed humanity. The first is what he calls the cognitive revolution that took place about 70,000 years ago. There were Homo sapiens for over 130,000 years before that, but they didn't really take over. They were as much at the mercy of nature as everything else, and then something switched that changed everything, not physically and probably not mentally, but the way we functioned with each other, we just came up with something that changed everything. The first revolution, about 70,000 years before now. The second, the agricultural revolution, around 10,000 BC, when we learned not to hunt and to gather, but to shepherd, to pasture the flocks, and to plant and to reap. And then he describes only three. He has a scientific revolution 500 years ago, but implicitly in the book there's really one in between. It's the social revolution that comes about in the echoes of the agricultural revolution. How does the society change when we have cities and farms and establishment religion? Now his book begins with the beginning of time. In fact, he has a timeline at the very beginning. And the first item on the timeline is 13.5 billion years ago, matter and energy appear. Well, thank you. <laughs> That's in the beginning, in the very beginning. But he quickly moves forward to talk about the beginning of humanity. Six million years ago, there was a chimpanzee, or some proto-chimpanzee, that had two daughters, at least. One became the ancestor of us, and the other became the ancestor of chimpanzees. So it was six million years ago that that branch diverged. And as I mentioned, 10,000 years ago, when there were more than one variety of homo out there, we weren't so unique. What gave us that great leap forward, in fact, what most likely enabled us to wipe out the other varieties that were out there, they found, by the way, studying human DNA, that about eh, 2 to 5% in certain populations shows Neanderthal DNA in human DNA. So it's a small percentage, but it's not like we simply integrated them. We probably wiped out most of them. But in any case, what enabled us to take this great leap forward was our brain. In the human being, the brain represents 3% of the body mass. But at rest, it uses up 25% of our energy. Compare that to a great ape, where their brain only uses up about 8% of their energy. So we're using three times as much energy to run our brain and to think. The consequences of this, some of them are problems. Our children are children for a lot longer. I mean, back then it wasn't until their 30s. But <laughs> even so, until they were 13, let's say, to follow the Jewish model to train, to educate, to acculturate. That takes a long time. And certainly the helpless infant who can't even walk for several years compared to the antelope that runs within a few hours. 
What that requires, the kind of support and community and society that a lone mother simply couldn't do. When you see these animals that are running around with the mothers with several kids following them in a row, that's not how we work. And it hasn't been how we worked in part because of our large brain. Indeed, it was our ability to start hunting that took us to the top of the food chain. And so here's how Harari describes it. The spectacular leap from the middle to the top had enormous consequences. Other animals at the top of the food pyramid, such as lions and sharks, evolved into that position gradually over billions of years. This enabled the ecosystem to develop checks and balances that prevent lions and sharks from wreaking too much havoc. As lions became deadlier, so gazelles evolved to run faster, hyenas to cooperate better, and rhinoceroses to be more bad-tempered. In contrast, humankind ascended to the top so quickly that the ecosystem was not given time to adjust. Moreover, humans themselves failed to adjust. Most top predators of the planet are majestic creatures. Millions of years of domination have given them lots of self-confidence. Sapiens, by contrast, is more like a banana republic dictator. <laughs> Having so recently been one of the underdogs of the savanna, we are full of fears and anxieties over our position, which makes us doubly cruel and dangerous. Many historical calamities, from deadly wars to ecological catastrophes, have resulted from this over-hasty jump. So you get a flavor for his humor as well. But his point is that we have taken over so tremendously that, no, that these animals don't know how to respond to us. You know, you go to the Galapagos Islands, and the tortoises aren't afraid of people because they haven't had the experience. And he describes very vividly how humanity destroyed entire ecosystems of what were called megafauna, or super large animals that used to exist, the sloth and the mastodon, now, some people have tried to exonerate humanity by claiming there was a small ice age or there was a climate change or the water change. But it seems to not be a coincidence that in many, many places, in Australia, in the Americas, the human beings show up and within 2,000 years, most of the megafauna dies out. And it could well be because it took, they only had a, an offspring every two or three years. It took them a long time to grow up and you start killing off the adult ones and you're going to, unfortunately, wipe out the species relatively quickly. Well, again, we've had impacts on the world, sometimes not always positive. He describes other steps that gave us a niche. It might have been one of our earliest niches, being able to make tools, was that we could get to the marrow inside the bones. We could scavenge with a stone and smash it open and get some nutrients that were left behind when all the other animals ran away. We learned how to domesticate fire, not only for warmth, but especially for cooking to break down the meat so it was easier to digest faster and more efficiently, and to make edible plants that before were not edible. Wheat would have been no use to us if all it was was taking the stalk and trying to chew it. It was the cooking, it was the fire that made wheat effective and ultimately opened the door to what he calls the biggest fraud, the agricultural revolution. Now, 70,000 years ago to about 30,000 years ago, you see an explosion of inventions. Boats, oil lamps, the bow and arrow, the needle to make clothing, art, pictures of a lion man, a human body with a lion's head, nothing that ever existed in nature, but that came out of the human imagination, or those cave paintings on the walls, those hands we still see. The concept of trade. We found seashells in graves, the concept of graves, but seashells in graves 
hundreds of miles from the seashore. Someone sold seashells, but not at the seashore. Perhaps it was that language opened this door because we could transmit culture from one to another and then build on discoveries. We could manage relationships with a larger group by talking. Now, animals have language too. It says, watch out, there's a lion. And sometimes, by the way, some species of ape will use that deceitfully. There's food on the ground. They'll say, watch out, there's a lion. The other ones jump for the trees and they eat the food. So that happens. But to be able to say, the lion spirit watches our tribe, that's human. Or, where did you see the lion? And how many were there? And that's something that human language facilitates. But it also facilitates, did you hear what happened? Did you hear that his father died? Did you hear that? That's the communication that makes larger cooperation possible. It's our imagination that helps to bridge that gap. Another example. Fiction has enabled us not merely to imagine things, but to do so collectively. We can weave common myths, such as the biblical creation story, the dreamtime myths of Aboriginal Australians, and the nationalist myths of modern states. Such myths give sapiens the unprecedented ability to cooperate flexibly in large numbers. Ants and bees can also work together in huge numbers, but they do so in a very rigid manner and only with close relatives. Wolves and chimpanzees cooperate far more flexibly than ants, but they can only do so with small numbers of other individuals that they know intimately. Sapiens can cooperate in extremely flexible ways with countless numbers of strangers. That's why sapiens rule the world, whereas ants eat our leftovers and chimps are locked up in zoos and research laboratories. We won because of that power of language and imagination, creating common myths, hierarchies that can get us over the 150-person hump. You see, if you're just going by rumors and connections and personal conversations, there seems to be a cap in human organization or in hunter-gatherer societies for around 100 to 150 people. It's actually very informative for congregational management, frankly. Um, but at the same time, if you can have larger myths, be it religion, or money, which itself is a myth, as we'll see, or nationality, empire, ideology. Those are things that can unite us in larger and larger groups. He uses a great example of a myth. It's called the Limited Liability Corporation. <laughs> that is a myth. It's something we've decided exists and can own property. But unless we decide to kill that myth, that myth continues even if all the factories burn down. The Legal Liability Corporation continues to exist. He uses the example of Peugeot simply because its logo looks a lot like that lion man that you saw in that early carving. Now, the cognitive revolution, as Harari points out, is also where humanity breaks with biology. It used to be the case that our strength, our facility, our abilities in the biological world were what defined whether we were successful. But the cognitive revolution changes everything. It goes much faster than, than evolution, of course. We spent millions of years as hunter-gatherers. We've only been uh, you know, are, uh, living at a higher level of cognitive function for the last 100,000 years. Uh, hunter-gatherers don't leave a lot of artifacts, so we don't know as much about how they lived. We know a lot about agricultural periods, but we also know that we still have that forager mentality of gorging on high-calorie foods. Because when they had the chance, the hunter-gatherers would. And we still do, unfortunately, unfortunately. 
Now, this is one of the interesting challenges that Harari presents. Was it so good to leave behind the hunter-gatherer lifestyle? And here's how he describes it. The forager economy provided most people with more interesting lives than agriculture or industry do. Today, a Chinese factory hand leaves home around 7 in the morning, makes her way through polluted streets to a sweatshop, and there operates the same machine in the same way, day in, day out, for 10 long and mind-numbing hours, returning home around 7 in the evening in order to wash dishes and do the laundry. 30,000 years ago, a Chinese forager might leave camp with her companions at, say, 8 in the morning. They'd roam the nearby forests and meadows, gathering mushrooms, digging up edible roots, catching frogs, and occasionally running away from tigers. By early afternoon, they were back at the camp to make lunch. That left, a, that left them plenty of time to gossip, tell stories, play with the children, or just hang out. Of course, the tiger sometimes caught them, or a snake bit them. But on the other hand, they didn't have to deal with automobile accidents and industrial pollution. He also points out they didn't have to deal with malnutrition. It turns out when you look at the skeletons of hunter-foragers, they had much less of a problem with malnutrition than er early agriculturalists, because early agriculturalists began eating the same thing over and over again. Rice for breakfast, rice for lunch, rice for dinner, wheat for breakfast, beer for lunch. This is, uh, they actually invented beer in Mesopotamia because it was a way to process wheat, but it didn't change the value of what they were getting nutritionally. So malnutrition was a problem. Epidemics were a problem. You need a closed-in population for mass diseases to, to flow through. And when you are relying on a hunter-gatherer lifestyle, if the food dries up, you go somewhere else. If there's a famine or a crop failure, especially if you have one crop that you rely on, then many, many people will suffer and die. And so it could be that agriculture is, as Harari calls it, history's biggest fraud. Now, what were some of the promises of settled agriculture? And remember, agriculture is not just plants. It's also animals, right? Sheep and goats and so on. What were some of the promises? You can imagine people thought, oh, this will be better if we have a system like this. What do you think? Anyone? Okay. Sure. You know, the irony with milk is that most, uh, just about everybody was lactose intolerant when we started having these animals, and it's the ones who were somewhat lactose tolerant that survived better. So the people that are still lactose intolerant are actually the traditionalists when it comes to digesting. Uh, but yes, the ready source of meat and protein with uh, milk without having to kill the animal. What else? Okay, so maybe if you're in a settled settlement, you have the strength of numbers and you're not left to the vagaries. Of, you could live in a house <laughs> as opposed to searching for caves or sleeping out in the wild. Any other advantages? I'm sorry? Well, maybe if you can create a surplus of agriculture, of food supply, then not everyone has to be looking for food all the time, which in the hunter-gatherer world is what 90% of people do with a lot of their time. Well, it turns out that this transition was not as smooth as we thought. The bargain was not so good. Now, he describes this transition happening about 12,000 years ago. Uh, it began around 9500 BCE in southeast Turkey, in Iran, and in the Middle East, in uh, Syria and Israel. 
Wheat and goats were domesticated about 9,000 BC. Peas and lentils about 8,000 BC. Olive trees about 5,000 BC. Horses by 4,000 BC and grapevines in 3,500 BC. And it turns out that 90% of the calories that feed humanity today come from plants that were domesticated by 3,500 BCE. Wheat, rice, corn, potatoes, millet, and barley. No noteworthy plant or animal has been domesticated in the last 2,000 years. So we set the template right then. And yet, the problem is, there were a lot of problems with this new system. For example, the body of Homo sapiens was not evolved for digging irrigation canals or lugging buckets of water. It was adapted to climbing apple trees and running after gazelles, not to clearing rocks and carrying water buckets. Human spines, knees, necks, and arches paid the price. Studies of ancient skeletons indicate the transition to agriculture brought about a plethora of ailments like slip discs, arthritis, and hernias. Moreover, the new agricultural tasks demanded so much time that people were forced to settle permanently next to their wheat fields. This completely changed their way of life. We did not domesticate wheat. It domesticated us. The word domesticate comes from the Latin domus, which means house. Who's the one living in a house? Not the wheat. It's the sapien. It didn't offer a better diet. It didn't offer better nutrition. But what it did was the basic essence of the agricultural revolution, which in Harari's words, the ability to keep more people alive under worse conditions. That was the compromise. Their lives were worse, but there were many more of them. And so, of course, who's to say which one of you is going to give up and go back to the hunter-forager hunter lifestyle? In 10,000 BCE, on the dawn of this agricultural revolution, there were 5 to 8 million nomadic foragers in the world. By the first century AD, 10,000 years later, there were 250 million farmers and only 1 to 2 million isolated foragers left. A radical transformation and huge, huge number increase. Of course, Harari points out, again, this is his veganism speaking, that it was a similar kind of Faustian bargain for the animals involved. As humans spread around the world, so did their domesticated animals. 10,000 years ago, not more than a few million sheep, cattle, goats, boars, and chickens lived in restricted Afro-Asian niches. Today, the world contains about a billion sheep, a billion pigs, more than a billion cattle, and more than 25 billion chickens and they are all over the globe. The domesticated chicken is the most widespread fowl ever. From a narrow evolutionary perspective, which measures success by the number of DNA copies, the agricultural revolution was a wonderful boon for chickens, cattle, pigs, and sheep. Unfortunately, that's an incomplete measure. It judges everything by the criteria of survival with no regard to suffering and happiness. Domesticated chickens and cattle may well be an evolutionary success story, but they are also among the most miserable creatures that ever lived. The domestication of animals was founded on a series of brutal practices that only became crueler with the passing of the centuries. You know how historically they got cows to keep giving milk? They made them keep having calves, and then they would take the calves away every time. And we know what happens to baby animals or people when you take them away from their mothers at a super early age. It's traumatic for both. And they would do it again and again. And again, and again. And he goes on and on. I mean, I, I almost changed my diet. Not quite, but I thought about it. Uh, but that's part of his agenda here as well. He's pointing out that it wasn't so good for us, but again, what's the measure? Who do we think we are? 
We think we're so different from the animal kingdom, but maybe what we do that affects them should affect us too. Now think about the changes that come about from settled agriculture. You have cities, you know, walled areas where the farmers can flee in case of an invasion of another army. You have armies, because now the agricultural surplus allows people to specialize in weaponry and not just in farming. You have slaves. You have taxes. You have cultural codes and writing. After all, you can't keep track of who owns what everywhere unless you write it down somewhere. And cultural codes have their own problems. He points out an interesting parallel that women in ancient Athens and women in modern Athens biologically are the same. Two X chromosomes, estrogen, ability to bear children, etc. But culturally, they were treated radically differently. They had no right to own property. They had no right to their own uh, choice of marriage partner. They had no right to participate in civil government. All that's changed in modern Athens. But that's how culture changes, even though biology doesn't. Those are artificial constructs that we have made, those myths that we tell for each other. He also points out there's an interesting parallel between the Code of Hammurabi, which was written about 1770 BCE, and the American Declaration of Independence, which was written in 1776 CE. Each of them claims that what they're doing is clearly obvious and revealed by the gods. The Declaration of Independence says, it is self-evident that all human beings are created equal. Self-evident by what evidence? <laughs> in fact, that's a myth we've told each other. It's a story that we like to believe in, and we say, well, ours is true. But Hammurabi would say, well, mine is true. My God told me that this is what it is. This is how it works. So what he does, Harari does, is rewrite the Declaration of Independence in a scientific, biological vocabulary. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men evolved differently, they are born with certain mutable characteristics, and that among these are life and the pursuit of pleasure. That you can prove and verify scientifically. But to claim that we are all equal, that it's self-evident that we have unalienable rights, like life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness, those aren't scientific terms, those aren't objective terms, those are value terms, those are things we've decided to agree on but it doesn't necessarily make them objectively true. And myths are so self-perpetuating, it changes even how we live. Before we had the concept of the individual, people didn't have their own rooms. Now that we have the concept of the individual, everybody demands their own room and even their own sink in the bath. Now what changed humanity in the broader picture was getting beyond the us and them. We're very hardwired for the us and them, that hunter-gatherer mentality, the tribal mentality. And yet, he says, there were three universal orders that began to challenge that question of us and them. The first one is money. The second one is an empire. And the third is religion. Now, why money? Money doesn't care who you are. You can do business with anybody. And he points out that in the same years that Christians and Muslims were slaughtering each other during the Crusades, they would use each other's coins, and they didn't care what it said on the coin. They didn't care if it had Muhammad on the coin, or if it had Allah on the coin, or if it had Jesus on the coin. It didn't matter. The coin was what was important. So much so that the Roman denarius was universally accepted as currency as far away as India. And even today, there are several countries whose currency is the dinar, like Jordan and other uh, Middle Eastern countries. 
and the evolution of that Latin term denarius for the Roman coin didn't matter if you were in Rome or not. It was accepted as valid. Why? Because they stamped it and said, we believe it. In Rome, we trust. He said on that money. And as he points out, our own money now has in God we trust and the U.S. Treasury Secretary's signature on it. So if you don't trust one, at least you'll trust the other. And why do we need money? Well, there's a limit to bartering. Here's an example. Let's say you're an apple farmer and you want to get a pair of shoes. Even if you manage to calculate how many apples equal one pair of shoes, barter is not always possible. After all, a trade requires that each side wants what the other has to offer. What if the shoemaker doesn't like apples? And at the moment in question, what he really wants is a divorce. Now, true, the farmer could look for a lawyer who likes apples and set up a three-way deal. But what if the lawyer is full up on apples and really needs a haircut? And it just goes on from there. Some societies have tried to solve the problem by establishing a central barter system that collects products from specialized growers and manufacturers and distributes them to those who need them. The largest and most famous experiment was conducted in the Soviet Union, and it failed miserably. Everyone would work according to their abilities and receive according to their needs, turned out in practice into everyone would work as little as they could get away with and receive as much as they could grab. More moderate and more successful experiments were made on other occasions, for example, in the Inca Empire, but most societies found an easier way to connect large numbers of people. Money, a universal exchange. But of course, the world of capitalism has had its excesses. Intersections of war and profit. He tells the story of the Greek rebellion bonds that were issued in the 18, uh, early 1800s when Greece was trying to rebel and needed money. So they issued Greek rebellion bonds in England. And lots of people bought them up. And when they did well on the battlefield, the value of the bonds went up because they might pay us back. And when they did poorly on the battlefield, the, battle, the value of the bonds went down. And when it looked like they were going to be defeated, there were so many bondholders who stood to turn a terrible loss, they petitioned the British government to send the ships who went and shelled the Ottoman navy and therefore saved the bondholders. And the Greeks got their independence, but it saved the bondholders, which was part of the agenda. Or the other example of the opium wars in the 1840s, where the British, in the name of free trade, including the freedom to sell drugs to the Chinese population, use their technology to defeat the Chinese army. We have slavery, we have debt peonage, but you can't go back. He says, we're, we're in the world of capitalism now, and you see that example of the Soviet Union, any other system seems to simply not work given what we're used to doing. That's one universal order that could unite everybody in the world of commerce. A second universal order, again, based on a myth, but connecting millions of people, is the concept of empire, where you not only have a king of your territory, but you have a king of the kings, someone who can rule multiple peoples under one umbrella. And as Harari points out, we think of empires as terrible things, and people should have the right to decide for themselves what they do, but sometimes empires aren't all bad. If you remember the Monty Python movie, The Life of Brian, there's a very funny scene where they're debating what to do about the Romans. And what have the Romans ever given us, given us, they asked. And someone points out, the aqueduct. Well, okay, they gave us the aqueduct, but what else? Streets and sanitation? Okay, aside from streets and sanitation, the aqueduct, what are they given us? Public order and uh, the Colosseum. And <laughs> they go on to list several things that the Romans actually gave them. And so he points out all the contributions that the English made to Indian society today. And Indians are not willing to give back cricket or the English language as a lingua franca among all the language groups in India, or democracy, or the railroad system, or all the other things that these terrible, oppressing empires gave to them, 
Well, there's a plus and a minus. Again, he's trying to complicate the story. It's not as simple as you think it is. The irony is that many of these former colonies have adopted European ideas of self-determination and human rights to demand their freedom from the empires that gave them the ideas in the first place. And the last concept that unites people across borders and ethnicities is religion. It's a superhuman order, one imagines, that has binding norms and values that controls behavior. In fact, the agricultural revolution, Harari points out, was even more dependent on the concept of a future because if the harvest fails, people will die. And that's why, even in Jewish life, the days of awe occur just before the rainy season because then it is decided who will live and who will die. If the rains come at the right time, we will live. If not, some will die. And then the third revolution he discusses is the scientific revolution. He gives wonderful examples of the advances that we had performed. I'll give you just a couple of those. The last 500 years witnessed a phenomenal and unprecedented growth in human power. In the year 1500, there were 500 million Homo sapiens in the world. Today, there are 7 billion. In 1500, humanity consumed 13 trillion calories of energy a day. Today, we consume 15,000 trillion cal calories a day. Suppose a single modern battleship got transported back to Columbus's time. In a matter of seconds, it could make driftwood out of the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, and then sink the navies of every great world power without getting a scratch. Five modern freighters could have taken on board all the cargo carried by all the world's merchant fleets. A modern computer could store every word and number in all the codex books and scrolls in every medieval library with room to spare. In 1500, few cities had more than 100,000 inhabitants and so on and so on. Just imagine all the changes that have come from the result of the scientific revolution. And he describes it as having three basic steps. The first step to the revolution was admitting your ignorance. You see, religion assumes that we either already know everything or whatever we don't know, we don't need to know. It's not worth exploring. The religion, the revelation, the text, the God has told us everything we need to know. And the big revolution, he says, in Europe, beginning in 1400 or so, was when they began drawing maps with empty space on the map. Instead of filling it with dragons or demons or Satan or fallen angels or what, now there's empty space on the map, and we want to know what's there. We want to find out what's really there. And they would even draw the empty space in the middle of the continent once they had mapped the coastline. But there was still more to find out somewhere in the middle. So first step, admit that you don't know. The second step is to rely on observation and specifically on math and reason. He uses a wonderful example of how statistics can help to control society. There was a case of the um, Scottish Widows and Orphans of, uh, Ministers Fund. They were trying to find an insurance system that would work for Presbyterian ministers' families to support them, but they needed to know how many would die in a certain year. And they were able to use statistics. <laughs> to discover what would make sense in terms of an average mortality rate and how many average children would be left behind. And it's actuarial tables, the first time it was done. And they predicted in 20 years, they would wind up with a certain amount of money. They were within one pound of the exact number they had. And so that's the power of numbers and observation and even math. And third, once you admit you don't know, you observe, you use math and reason to discover, and then you apply that knowledge to technology. It was a new concept, the idea of progress. We could do better now than we did before. It was a beautiful picture of 
Benjamin Franklin with a kite flying in a rainstorm. You know, that's where he proved that lightning was, in fact, electricity. And then he invented the lightning rod to put it on top of a building to run from the rod to a wire down to the ground. Well, lightning was thought to be divine judgment. It was punishment. The caption on the picture says, Benjamin Franklin disarming the gods. <laughs> but it also raises the desire for immortality, of course. We think we can fix everything, even when we do have limitations. He also highlights the connection between capitalism and science. Empires funded exploration for knowledge, but also for territory. Interestingly enough, the Chinese also funded seagoing explorations in the 1400s. They sent out a massive armada that went to Indonesia and possibly to Australia even, but they weren't interested. They didn't want to apply that knowledge. He gives an example of how in Europe, when they invented the railroad, they built thousands of miles of railroad. In Iran, they built 10 miles from the capital to a holy city and back. That was it. In China, a Belgian company built about 25 miles and the next emperor tore it up. He didn't need it. It wasn't that they couldn't have adopted the technology. Chinese invented gunpowder, you know, centuries before Europeans applied it into weaponry. But it was the interest, it was the orientation that made the difference. So that's how Europe took over. And there's plenty more on this in other writers, of course. He's summarizing lots of other scholarship. So the final challenge he offers us is, what do we do now? And are we happier? That's the core question. Are we really happier from where we were before? And can we handle the power that we've discovered? The science, this knowledge, has given us the ability to destroy the world and to remake it, whether it's genetic engineering, the real intelligent design that's happening in the world now by people, or by scientific impact on the environment, or on the fauna and the animals that are around. We might be causing another extinction, just in a different way than we killed the megafauna. How do we balance community and the individual? We've came up with this idea, the individual, now we're stuck with it. And how do we balance when the state is strong and the markets are strong, but families get weaker? Do we need the stronger family, but does that undermine the state? And sometimes life is better in the big picture. He looks at mortality rates and murder rates. The murder rate in pre-modern societies was sometimes 40 or 50 out of 100,000. And now, globally, it's 9 out of 100,000. And most of those are in Somalia and failed states and... Honestly, the rate in most places is four or five out of 100,000 compared to eight times as many in pre-modern societies. War is more costly now, but also in some ways, he argues, it might be less profitable. If China invaded Silicon Valley, are they going to take over what Silicon Valley does? No. It's the people who know things. It's the human capital, the ideas, the ingenuity that's the true value of Silicon Valley. So let me end with this key question that he asks near the end of the book, in his conclusion. Are we happier? Did the wealth humankind accumulated over the last five centuries translate into newfound contentment? Did, this, did the discovery of inexhaustible energy resources open before us inexhaustible stores of bliss? Going further back, have the 70 or so turbulent millennia since the cognitive revolution made the world a better place to live? Was the late Neil Armstrong, whose footprint remains intact on the windless moon, happier than the nameless hunter-gatherer who 30,000 years ago left her handprint on a wall in Chauvet Cave? 
If not, what was the point of developing agriculture, cities, writing, coinage, empire, science, and industry? Are we happier? Well, I don't know. In the end, he asks another challenging question. He doesn't provide the answer to that. I think he would say in some ways we are happier, in some ways we're not. He would actually say, coming from his Buddhist orientation, that our problem is our expectations are off. And that if we simply had lower expectations or simply no expectations whatsoever, the way to solve desire, says Buddhism, is stop wanting things. Easier said than done, perhaps. And we like being attached to people we love and to things we enjoy. So maybe that's not the universal solution. In the end, though, he asks a harder question. What do we want? Ironically, his objective history ends with the most subjective of questions. What do you want? Well, it might not be what I want. What do we want? How do we know? What if we change our mind? I don't think we'll ever know. But at least now we know who we are. And we know that asking questions is the most human thing that we do. This podcast was produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom at Kol Hadash Humanistic Congregation in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening.